My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. organization, because of our intersectional analysis of poverty and its issues, one, we've really tried to pay attention to our membership and how inclusive or not are we. But then also in terms of the work we do, we've recognized the need to be outspoken and to support other initiatives around Indigenous rights, anti-racism initiatives, etc. That's the voice of Rosemary Brown. She and Lisa Harry are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Lisa Harry has engaged in anti-racism and anti-oppression work in the context of all three levels of government and the nonprofit sector. Rosemary Brown has been engaged in activism and organizing for most of her adult life around racism, women's liberation, indigenous and international solidarity, workers' struggles, and much more. Both of them live in Calgary, Alberta, and are active with a grassroots anti-poverty group called We're Together Ending Poverty, or WTEP. As with any Canadian city, there's a lot of poverty in Calgary. Even before the pandemic, close to 200,000 people, or about 12% of the population, did not make enough money to meet their basic needs. And that skyrocketed under the impacts of COVID-19. With demand high and vacancy rates low, the cost of rental housing jumped 25% between January and May of this year, and close to 2,000 people experience homelessness in the city on any given night. And food bank use in Calgary increased by one-third between February 2021 and February 2022. Brown said that in the stories of living in poverty that she heard in her working-class family growing up, quote, above and beyond the hardship involved was the lack of dignity with which you were often treated by others, end quote. And generally speaking, people who face racism, sexism, ableism, transphobia, and other forms of oppression are more likely to experience poverty. Back in 2007 or 2008, there was a local initiative in Calgary called Poverty Talks, which brought together people living in poverty to talk about their experiences and also about what they thought would help their situations. One result of this process was an extensive list of recommendations addressed to various institutions and governments. However, at one discussion group in this process, organized by the Calgary Women's Centre, a woman who was present stood up at the end and proposed that the women in the room themselves needed to take action. Over the next several months, those who were interested met to figure out some baseline commitments for the new group. Things like addressing the root causes of poverty through systemic change, foregrounding the importance of things like sexism, racism, and ableism, as well as the concentration of wealth in creating poverty and shaping how it's experienced, and developing mutually supportive relationships and challenging oppression in their work. Much of what they've done since then has continued to involve the slow, deliberate work of bringing people together to share experiences and build collective understandings and relationships through things like workshops, conferences, events, and sharing circles. They have collectively asked questions, shifted their understanding and ways of work, and taken action based on the experiences of and dialogue among their members. This has involved things like thinking through capitalism and its relationship to poverty, particularly in the context of Alberta's oil industry. 
It's led to being part of specific campaigns, like that for a fairer tax system in Alberta, and various kinds of work in support of tenants. And it's led the group to shift from its original incarnation as women together ending poverty to we're together ending poverty, to expand its base to include the gamut of non-binary, gender-diverse, trans, and two-spirit people. The group has also become active in campaigning for a guaranteed basic income, though with full awareness of the limits and challenges of that approach as voiced by many of their members and other people living in poverty. And in recent years, they've been working more closely with local indigenous activists to expand their understanding of poverty and do more in their thinking and in their activities to center and challenge the pervasive realities of colonization and racism. I speak with Harry and Brown about poverty in Calgary and about We're Together Ending Poverty. My name is Rosemary Brown. First, I would like to acknowledge that I'm on Treaty 7 land and specifically in Mokinstis or Calgary, Alberta. I'm a white settler, and I was born and raised on the traditional lands of the Onondaga Nation in upstate New York. I've been an activist for most of my life in anti-racism movements, the women's movement, indigenous and international solidarity, labor, etc. And right now, I'm currently involved, obviously, with We're Together Ending Poverty, but also Justice for Palestinians and the Reconciliation Action Group. My name is Lisa Harry. I also would like to acknowledge that I was born and raised on Treaty 7. I became involved with an initiative called Poverty Talks, which were together ending poverty emerged out of when I was working with the Women's Center of Calgary. I have been in the diversity, equity and inclusion space for over 20 years and an educator on anti-racism education, anti-oppression education. We're together ending poverty. We're small, we're diverse, we're grassroots. We were formed in 2008, and our main purpose has been to educate and empower ourselves and others to take action on root causes of poverty. But we also strive to work on our relationships within the group to develop mutually supportive relationships and to really address any behaviors that are oppressive so that it is as welcoming and as safe a space as possible. Very briefly, give listeners a bit more of a sense of who you are politically as individuals and how you got that way. My great-grandfather came from India went to Vancouver, settled there for a number of years, and rode on the top of a train and then was kicked off somewhere just outside of Golden. And he walked and made his way to Calgary and slowly established himself quite well in Calgary. I have worked for three levels of government on anti-racism initiatives using an anti-racism lens and an anti-oppression lens to understand the intersectionality of all people that are experiencing or impacted by oppression. Along with that, I have worked at the community level in various organizations and so kind of bring, I think, a lens of what can our activism or what can our actions do to impact a difference, not only in policy, but also in our awareness. How does oppression differentially impact certain groups of people? My activism came naturally to me because I am Sikh. And that faith is created around social justice. It really is about reducing and eliminating classism. 
I think the other thing is just from watching my grandfather, who was very active in the Sikh temple and this sense of giving back to communities, it certainly made me have a heightened awareness of the inequities in our society. I grew up in a working class family in upstate New York. A family, though, that transitioned to a more middle-class lifestyle as economic conditions changed in the United States as a whole. But throughout that time, I grew up with many stories from my mother, who had grown up in poverty. The thing that really impacted me from a lot of those stories, above and beyond the hardship involved, was the lack of dignity with which you were often treated by others. And that really stuck with me. And I think is why I've ended up being part of We're Together Ending Poverty and helping to get it off the ground. I've been here in Calgary for over 45 years. I've always been a community activist here in terms of employment. I've done many different things. But during all of that time, I've been involved in the community and in activism. How does poverty show up in people's lives and in how the community works in Calgary? The whole issue of housing and being housed has been critical right since the beginning of our group. This is the issue that was raised over and over again, and it was presented to us from many different aspects. People who had to live on the street, they had nowhere else to be. People who were couch surfing and feeling grateful that they were able to do that. Tenants who came up against landlords who essentially were slum landlords in this city, but who were afraid to complain about unhealthy, unsafe conditions because then they would be probably kicked out and where would they go? Hearing women talk about having to water down the milk so they could get the milk to stretch for their children. Again, mothers especially talking about a constant balancing act. Do I pay utilities? Do I pay rent? Do I put food on the table for my children? And that's not even talking about, you know, clothing, transit, and all of those other costs. It's been made so clear to us that poverty does exist in Calgary. It exists in the forms of, you know, food insecurity, housing insecurity, not being able to meet basic needs. I don't have the stats right now, but there's a count done every year for those who are on the streets. And the numbers go up and down, but in general, there's been an increase. And meanwhile, the number of units that people can afford lag far behind. And all of this, of course, reflects deep cuts in government spending at provincial and federal level in those areas. Alberta is very hard because there's a lot of individualism. There's a sense of, you know, you can all just pull yourself up by the bootstraps if you work hard enough. No one looks at barriers that exist. There's no recognition of the fact that people work hard. And those without jobs work hard, too. It's a lot of hard work to try and sustain yourself and your children when you don't have an income that meets those basic needs. And none of that is recognized. There's a lot of stigmatization of those who are living in poverty, a lot of poor bashing, etc. And a lot of it is hidden. I mean, the obvious are people who are unhoused and on the streets. But there are so many people, we don't see them, but they're struggling. It's all over. You wouldn't see it. It's not visible, but it's there. I think that count was 2,000, over 2,000 people are absolutely homeless in this city, in a city of such wealth. 
there is no affordable housing or certainly not enough affordable housing. We can't forget that a universal childcare program would really help people get to work, even access to education and training. I've heard there's a labor shortage, but how do you get into the programs, apprenticeship programs or post-secondary programs that help you get access to those jobs? And then I remember working for the Women's Centre and we would give out bus tickets on Monday morning. And so many people would call in and try and get a book of bus tickets because you needed the bus ticket to get to the interview for your job. And then you needed a way to get home. And for many, that's how you pick up your groceries because there isn't a grocery store in every single community. And then May is the month for mental health awareness and just access to the kinds of supports that you need to be mentally well. And that doesn't mean that you can't work or work part-time, but how do we accommodate people that have physical or mental disabilities? COVID has also made poverty in the city more visible, especially in terms of workers who had no choice but to show up for work because they had no other way to survive. You know, frontline workers, low-paid workers. There are many people here who are seasonal migrant workers, temporary foreign workers in our meatpacking plants, and they were disproportionately impacted by COVID. How was WTEP founded and what work has it done over the years? In 2008, it may have even started in 2007, there was an initiative with a lot of the organizations that were addressing poverty to come together, and it was called Poverty Talks. And that's actually how I got involved through the Women's Centre. The goal was to engage people actually living in poverty to come together and talk about not only their experiences, but what would help them. Through that initiative, there were hundreds of people that came together to provide their input and close to 100 recommendations printed and distributed to the legislature for the provincial government. The Women's Centre hosted several meetings and it was out of that that WTEP emerged. In 2007, I had attended a conference that the Women's Centre held and one of the workshops was led by women who experienced poverty. They talked about what they were experiencing, the activities they were involved in, what they wanted. And I was really impacted by that and just left with where could I put my efforts around those issues. And so when the Women's Center hosted one of the discussion groups for Poverty Talks, uh, it was all women came together women shared. And one woman in particular, at the end of it, she stood up. She was from El Salvador. And she said, we can't just end this here. We need to do something. And women are disproportionately impacted by poverty. So she wanted to see the establishment of a women's group that would work on this issue. So she put that idea out there. And then there were other women who were also interested. And then several months were spent, well, okay, who are we? What are we going to do? At that time, we were called Women Together Ending Poverty. I already mentioned our mission that was developed at that time. But we also came up with a set of beliefs and value statements around poverty that, you know, you can't solve poverty through charity, that the voices that need to be front and center are the voices of those who experience poverty. We didn't use the term intersectionality in those days, but we said you can't look at poverty without also looking at it from many different perspectives, whether it was class, gender, sexual orientation, age, etc. 
And we're also very, very aware of the role that the concentration of wealth in this world and this country plays in perpetuating poverty and trying to understand that our country, we have a particular form of capitalism here, and that creates the disparities and the economic inequities we live under. And so as WTEP, what can we do about that? And one of the events that we're involved in was a workshop that we based on Jim Stanford's book, Economics is for Everyone, to grasp that understanding that we shouldn't take the economic system we live under for granted. That first of all, there are systems that are not capitalist, but even among those that are capitalist, it doesn't have to take this form and shape. And of course, Scandinavia was pointed to so we also did a lot of workshops at the beginning around the economic system we lived in, the relationship between class and race. One of her meetings, one of the women, she was a single mom of three kids, didn't have a lot of money, worked as an Avon lady to make money. And she came into one meeting totally incensed. She said, the oil companies are attacking Avon. And we all sat there. Oh, well, why? What's going on? And I guess Avon had come up with a policy that they should make sure that when their goods are transported, that the transportation systems aren't using the oil from the oil sands, dirty oil. So that led the oil companies to attack Avon. But what it did for us was to say, okay, we live in this province based on this oil and gas industry, what is the relationship between that industry and poverty? So we had two workshops led by someone from the Parkland Institute, and they were entitled Artificial Austerity. They looked at the royalty system in Alberta and how little the oil companies actually contributed to the provincial government and how the provincial government was always complaining we don't have enough money to spend on social services, on health, on education, but they were never willing to challenge the income side. And so you had an unfair tax system, flat taxes. WTEP became involved. We collaborated with other groups in a Fair Taxes Alberta coalition. So those were some of the initiatives we became involved in at the beginning, and they grew very much out of the experiences of people in the group. Again, housing was a big thing. So there were workshops around affordable housing. There were different initiatives around tenants' rights. In 2016 or 17, we had a housing as a human rights conference. And out of that came the renters' action movement, which was quite active for a few years, but then was not able to sustain itself. Alberta is such a difficult place to organize also, as an organization, because of our intersectional analysis of poverty and its issues, one, we've really tried to pay attention to our membership and how inclusive or not are we. And we did a lot of work in terms of workshops, attending other things, reading, discussion to shift ourselves. We were no longer women together ending poverty because of our membership and who was our membership and needs they were putting forward. Basically, we now say we welcome all who self-identify as women, trans, non-binary, and two-spirit. So that's been a big internal shift for us over the years. But then also in terms of the work we do, we've recognized the need to be outspoken and to support other initiatives around Indigenous rights, anti-racism initiatives, etc., 
And we've brought that into our work, like our focus in the last few years in terms of ongoing workshops has been around the issue of basic income. Now, we recognize this is one small little poverty reduction tool. It doesn't address by any means the whole economic system. And yet, even in terms of those workshops, we talk about poverty from an intersectional perspective and look at who's disproportionately impacted. So that, in turn, influences our work and what we're trying to do. And our latest initiatives have been to reach out to four Indigenous activists here in the city to have a discussion around poverty and what they thought of basic income. And again, while they thought it was a useful tool, they made it so clear that unless we are addressing issues of colonization, we as a society are never going to be eliminating poverty experienced by Indigenous peoples. Everything that came with colonization, and especially racism, need to be addressed. So one thing we've been doing is changing. Like we had very kind of formal workshops. They were good. They were with videos. They were interactive, small groups. But now we're doing something a little different. We approached a knowledge keeper within the Indigenous community because she actually, in a previous meeting, had challenged us, you've got to get beyond the agencies with your workshop and letting people know about this. So we went to her and we said, how do we do that? And she said, maybe hold sharing circles instead and base them around a craft. And then while people are working, you can be asking questions and finding out what people think and feel about the struggles they're having meeting basic needs. And then, you know, you can bring in the issue of basic income. So we've had three of those so far. We're about to have two more. And one thing that's coming through loud and clear, and this is echoed by conversations with the coordinator from the Disability Action Hall here in Calgary, who has talked with members of the Disability Action Hall, as well as members of Poverty Talks about basic income. And we're finding people who experience poverty, they have a lot of questions, they have a lot of concerns, they're worried about it becoming another poverty trap. They're worried about what happens to the benefits they're already receiving, etc. WTEP is now part of Basic Income Calgary. Basic Income Calgary, in response to those concerns, which have been expressed over the years, has come up with a set of principles around basic income, that it has to be universal, it has to be individual, it has to be adequate. It should not see existing benefits be taken away, and it should be complementary to much broader social support programs. And I think the challenge facing us now is how do we make sure that in the pressuring with the government that those principles are kept first and foremost? Because the key thing is we can have principles, but how is the program going to be designed? I wanted to add to that that We've engaged with people over the years in very different ways. We've had art projects. So for the housing symposium or conference that Rosemary spoke about, women created works of art. And we took it to the conference and we put it on a wood frame in the format of a skeleton framing of a house. That's one example. And it was really, really powerful. So it sounds like many of the things that the group has done over the years have focused on bringing people together in different ways to share experiences and to come to shared understandings of what they face. How do you connect that work, particularly the forms it has taken in more recent years, to the kinds of change we need to see in the world and how those kinds of change happen? 
part of it is through collaboration, collaborating with other movements to build more of a movement. Because we've recently seen with the so-called freedom protesters, actually, I was speaking to someone the other day, and she said she calls them the hate honkers. And here in Calgary, I mean, we've had ongoing protests through one of our neighborhoods downtown with hundreds of people. And where was the progressive community in terms of having some kind of unified response to that? Finally, a group of young activists in our city started holding some counter protests and that finally led to the hate honkers being moved out of that neighborhood. So there's that. But the other thing that came through clearly is that there was a narrative being put forward, right, by the hate honkers about our country, about freedom, about, again, individualism, people's rights. And where was the counter-narrative? Where was the unified counter-narrative in terms of the work being done in communities to protect each other during COVID, to support each other during COVID? And so we need a more unified progressive movement here in Calgary. There have been attempts before. We had the Common Front. WTEP itself was involved in trying to get an anti-oppression network happening. It's very hard when, you know, we're all working on our issues that are all important and people are so busy. Where do you have the time to bring people together, to weave the interconnections right between all of the work that we're doing to understand what we're up against? I feel like that's our starting point. That's at one level. And then, of course, you've got the formal political system and who's in power. And right now, we have a government in power in our province that's done its best to undermine everything progressive that the previous government had brought about. And so that's another arena where challenges need to take place and where we need to bring in another government that at least gives us some breathing room to not always constantly being under attack, whether we're a teacher or a healthcare worker or working in social services. And that's something else I wanted to say about WTEP. Because we're grassroots, we can say what we want. We can say what needs to be said. We don't have to worry about somebody cutting off our funding. But I just feel like there are those two levels. There's the electoral level, but then there's also our movement level. And there's so much work ahead of us that needs to be done. And so I know you asked us to make the connections between the work we're doing. And I think part of the answer is WTEP has always tried to collaborate with others in terms of our work to build common understanding and build some deeper understandings around the issues. People living in poverty know all about living in poverty. It's educating people that think that poverty doesn't exist in our society or don't see it. And I think it's that broader education that really makes a change in our society, long-term change. So it's really educating and engaging people that can really make a difference. Not only are we empowering people that live in poverty, but we're asking those that can make a difference to be allies. You have been listening to my interview with Rosemary Brown and Lisa Harry of We're Together Ending Poverty. To learn more about the group, go to wtapyyc.wordpress.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show.
On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. 